0: Welcome to Meet the Church. This is a podcast from Providence Church in Austin featuring a new person each week from our congregation. We're excited to discuss the work, interests, and testimonies of our church members to better get to know each other and to talk about experiences with God. I'm Dorothy Bennett, and this week I get to talk with Damon Krim about his missionary career in Latin America, his passion for other languages, and how his family is seeing God revealed in the self-sacrificial love of his father for his mother who suffers with Alzheimer's. Before we hear the testimony with Damon, I want to share an update from his family. After a long struggle with Alzheimer's, Damon's mother, Anne, passed away on Sunday evening, July 19th. Damon was able to be by her side along with his family in Nashville, and he said he's so thankful that God allowed him that experience. Damon's father sent a request to friends and family saying, in lieu of flowers or donations, to do something kind or giving for someone else. These loving acts of service will honor Anne and help to pass on her legacy. From Damon's description of his father, this sounds exactly like something he would say. And we are very thankful to Damon for sharing with us his experiences, his family, and his testimony. And we have titled this episode, Queen Anne's Garden. Thank you for listening. So Damon, you have lived in Brazil. You've lived in Austin. You've worked in business for a large chunk of your career. And you originally went to school at Baylor University. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. What did you study? I studied finance. Studied finance at Baylor after graduating, left Texas for 20 years and just came back about two and a half, three years ago.
0: And you were in Brazil. Was that the whole chunk of the 20 years that you were outside of Texas or were you in different places as well?
1: No, I I moved to Phoenix immediately after college. and lived in Phoenix for 10 years.
0: And is that where you went to the Phoenix Seminary?
1: Yeah. 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 I went to Phoenix Seminary.
0: How was that experience?
1: Uh, It was, you know, that was, I didn't move to Phoenix um, to go to Phoenix Seminary. I actually moved there to try to play golf. Uh, I I thought when when I graduated, uh, I just, um, that was what I was most passionate about. And I thought there's no better time now than to give it a shot. And Phoenix is the best place to measure up your talent. So I went out there and and tried to play, you know, after I I realized that I wasn't a good enough golfer to make it bro, I started, um, I worked in, in the golf industry a little bit. And then I, and then I got into business development and sales during that period. I went, I got really involved with a, with a church in Phoenix and we went on a, a mission exposure trip to Guatemala. Really what it was is we went with a a missionary that was there and we would go to different locations and, and work with local missionaries. And they would explain a little bit about the, what it's like to be in the field and, you know, what are the real, you know, what are the myths, what are the realistic expectations? Mm -hmm. And and so um, after I went on that trip, I felt a very, very strong conviction about, you know, want to make that, you know, my vocation in terms of, you know, that's why I want to spend my full time going on missions. You know, I prayed a lot about that. I spoke with the church, but that was about a four-year process from the time that I decided that that's what I wanted to do till actually it happened. And that's how I wound up in Paraguay.
0: And do you think this was a, a long-burning desire in you to go and be a proponent of the gospel and go where the needs are the most? Or was there a moment, I'm going to alter my life course and address it?
1: Well, I think it was, you know, it was God ordained uh, at first. It wasn't, it wasn't gospel minded, but God created me with, um, the ability to, I have passion for particularly Latin America, hmm. uh, even from a young age. And that wasn't, you know, that wasn't something that came from anyone that, was, there were no, you know, external influences and I would, and I, and I could pick up languages relatively easily. Um, there are most things that it, it, it takes me a lot of time to learn, but languages are one thing that I have, a the ability to learn relatively quickly. It's amazing. And, uh, and I, and I enjoy really, I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated with, diff- with getting to know different cultures and the way people live. And so that was before I came a Christian. Once I, you know, my my whole school, my whole purpose in life changed when I gave my life to Christ at, at 21, so God used those gifts, uh, that those talents that He gave me to be able to uh, engage, you know, the passion for for adventure and, and mixing that with the ability to uh, adapt to different cultures and languages, and then ultimately for the to to spread the the gospel message was, was I mean it was clearly God ordained.
0: Wow. It does sound like there were a lot of languages that you were around and needing to operate in. How many languages are you conversational in?
1: English, Spanish, and Portuguese.
0: Is there something about those languages besides English that you really enjoy or find really neat?
1: Well, Latin languages, I think, are they just they have a certain um, fluidity and rhythm that's that's appealing to the ear. More so, it's just being able to engage. You know, I've been on a lot of mission trips and I've had people, I've hosted um, trips, uh, teams on many occasions. And one of the most common things you hear is, I wish I could have, you know, I'm going to learn Spanish or I'm going to, you know, I want to be able to, I wish I could have talked to that person Mm -hmm. directly or, Mm -hmm. you know. And so when you, when you, if you like to travel, you know, tourism is great. And uh, I think, but for me personally, what, what is most interesting to me are the people. And getting to see, you know, understand what their lives are like and what they do, and and in order to do that, you know, you need to be able to commu- you know, effectively communicate. So,
0: and it sounds it sounds like for you, just the ability to connect with other people is really mm-hmm. the central to it. What is the feeling like whenever you can approach somebody, speak to them in their native language, and start that connection?
1: Yeah, I remember the first time there were a couple of of, of Memorable times where I just uh, I felt overwhelmed with joy one was the first time I led a Bible study in Paraguay in Spanish and um, was a, was able to communicate with a with a group of people see with habitat we were um that was my forum to get down there but i was, again I was more interested in the people that that the actual communities that were built the habitat communities and the people that live in those communities. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time with them and um, developed relationships with with one that had about 30 or 40 homes. And so started having some Bible studies out there with that group. Another time was when I was in a service. The way that Spanish is spoken in South America is a lot different than it is. I mean, it, it varies country by country, but mm-hmm. certainly and certain countries in South America are are, uh, are very distinct and not not something that my ear was trained to to hear so even though I thought I knew Spanish when I got down there it was what is going on here (laughs) I have no idea I lived with a family um for the first three months down there because I really wanted to see what it was like to live as it was a probably a like a upper lower class family and uh, it was near the habitat office the minimum wage was 150 bucks a month and I was living off that for the first like three or four months, but I would eat all my meals with them, and I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> so the first time I was sat in a, um, first time I was in a service cause I was still going to church, but not understanding a lot of it. And I really was able to understand everything the pastor said. I was exhilarated. I mean, it just kind of clicked all of a sudden. So those are a couple of memorable moments. Definitely. And then the first time I preached in Portuguese also was, was, um, an incredible, just experience to be able to, to use that talent in that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With, with mission work, I feel like a lot of people have a perception of it. That's very tied to the 19th century golden age of sending out missionaries. We would never see them again for the rest of our life. Let's hope they survive. But it, it has updated along with the rest of the world. It's still a very vital thing to be a part of and to be sending people into the mission field how would you describe what you actually did?
1: Yeah, I think um, there were some components of it that, that would meet. You know, it was very, very old fashioned and some of it that was very progressive. When I was in Paraguay, when I was working with these, these families, these habitat families and, and really um, developing my relationships with them, at the time, Paraguay was one of the poorest economies, if mm. the, maybe the, the poorest economy in Latin America. Or or close to it. I mean Bolivia or Haiti maybe, but and so work if you're uneducated getting a job was almost an impossibility. And these families, these Habitat families were, you know, the way Habitat works is they will they'll finance the home over 10 years with no interest, but you do have to make mortgage payments. And they were way behind and 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 in jeopardy of being foreclosed. And where they came from was the roughest area. I mean, there was there were shanty towns and and dangerous and rough and they hmm. were that's where they would have been heading back. So as a result of that, um, we were able to, uh, I was able to partner with another organization, a a Christian organization in Paraguay. We had the same vision, bought property and developed an agricultural project. So the agriculture goes back to, you know, as far as, as man existed, but we were able to employ those, those families and and make some you know, on a monthly basis. Um, you know, fra- we froze the um, the foreclosure process. Was able to catch up. You know, pay two months of of, of payments each month, and mm. then the rest was enough for their families to live off of. So yeah. that was the um, that was. But so that was a little antiquated. But it was what was um, necessary to to reach the people in Paraguay. And then in Brazil, it was um it was urban, completely urban. I was mm-hmm. in Rio de Janeiro in the city. I mean, it's a big city and right in the heart of it and was working through um, in both places. I worked through the local church, but in Rio, I was, I was working in community development through a a church plant that were in some of the disenfranchised and and lower income areas of Rio, which are called favelas and are generally run by drug lords. Mm. And um, so there, you know, it was, yeah, I, I trained jujitsu, which is a martial art. And it's actually, you know, the Brazilians perfected it. Mm-hmm. And um, they're no, it's known as Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I had trained a lot before I even went to Brazil. And this is another just total, I mean, God has blessed me so much because I was very passionate about, I loved, loved, loved jujitsu. And to, to go to Brazil and then God allowed me to use that as a form of ministry. Wow. And so that was part of, um, we were able to to create a couple of jujitsu projects, one in in um, in that com- in one of the communities and one at uh, the church, the host church that planted that, uh, which was nearby. So it was a way of getting people to, to come to church and get exposed to church as a form of ministry. So that was just one component, but that's completely different than farming.
0: With your approach to identifying a need and then wanting to get into the community to address that, Is that how your interest in finance fits into your, your plethora of interests?
1: Um, what I'm doing now is, um, it's not so much the finance that is compelling. It's the scope of our work, which is, um, a big part of that is finance. But, uh, I work with a a consulting firm and we, uh, work with government enforcement agencies and identifying, investigating, prosecuting um, complex financial fraud. We, you know, obviously the finance is a big part of that, but the bigger scope is uh, exposing the deeds of darkness, mm. exposing fraud and aiding the defraud is really our mission. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I feel very, very fortunate that um, I'm able to work with a group of people that are very passionate about, um, about the work that we do and there's great purpose behind it. I feel very fortunate that that what we do actually, you know, is impactful. Finance is, um, you know, definitely is a draw, but it's more the 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 aiding the defrauded and exposing the fraud is really the the driver there.
0: You mentioned earlier that you became a Christian at 21. What was that process? When did when did God become real to you?
1: Well, I grew up in um, Southern Baptist. Um, very conservative home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My parents were strong in their faith. I participated, you know, un- pretty much unwillingly. I mean, I had to participate. I didn't have a choice. I was a kid. I had to go where they took me. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't something that I looked forward to or enjoyed. But I, identi- I identified myself as a Christian because, you know, in, in Southern Baptist, you're going to have the altar call and, and you're gonna you know you're gonna have the gospel presented at the end of each, each service and if you wanna you know make a commitment, then you walk up there and and you make your commitment i'm not I'm not um discounting or I'm not trying to criticize that process. it's just that for me you know walking an aisle was not a conversion experience mm. even though I called myself a christian I just there was no evidence of that in my life whatsoever that pretty much you know took me through. You know all of high school and most of college, and as a result of that, I had a rebellious spirit. It wasn't just that I was apathetic.
0: Hmm.
1: I rebelled against wise counsel. I rebelled against any, any kind of authority I would I wasn't malicious, but I just I, I, I just didn't do well with rules. And so I didn't adhere to them. And that caused a lot of problems, you know. That that caused that caused a lot of problems in my life. I remember I was pretty, you know. I still lived a pretty guarded life. I I was at the ranch, and there was this. There was a cook there that was an atheist. I never even met an atheist before. Hmm. I remember thinking, and I wasn't even a Christian at the time, even though I thought I was a Christian. And so I'm like, man, this guy, this guy has to hear about Christ. Uh. Even at that time, I thought. So I sat him down and he, this is after a while and he knew me and I was, you know, I was pretty wild. So I talked to him and I I told him about the gospel message and his response was, you know, take this as you, as you may. But if your life represents being a Christian, I don't want anything to do
0: with that. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That must've been very painful, but also you may just treasure the honesty now later.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, (laughs) It was, I, I wouldn't say that was the wake up call, but uh, it certainly was um, a cl- clear evidence of, you know, am, as a Christian, is there any fruit in my life, any good fruit? Yeah. And the answer was no. No, the answer is clearly no. I made a decision because I knew that alcohol was a big part of my life at that time too. So it wasn't that every time I drank I got into a lot of trouble, but every time I got in trouble, it was always a result of drinking. I d- I made a decision like after you know I'm gonna. It was after that summer that that guy said that I said I'm gonna I'm gonna stop. You know this last year of school I'm not gonna drink. I'm not gonna have any alcohol. Mm. Just want to live life a little bit differently. I can't sustain this lifestyle. Yeah. You know for any for any <laughs> length of time. And so um, I, I started to become a little more sober-minded. And then I got introduced to, um, well, at that time, it was it was referred to as Campus Crusade. You know, Todd Stuman, I met him at Baylor. He was on staff. Wow. We were there at the same time. We didn't spend a lot of time together. I was just getting involved with with Campus Crusade at the time, mm-hmm. and he was leaving. But through that process, there was a, a class that we took. Uh, I think it was one of the classes was on your testimony and um you were supposed to turn to the person next to you and share your testimony and it was like i got it was like getting slapped in the face and i realized i have no testimony to share oh. i mean not authentically yeah like and i really started getting concerned at that point like whoa am i even a christian mm. like am i really a follower i mean am i have i really given my life to christ or was it just lip service that's when i had to deal with it that night i mean i was when I left there, I was, you know, just just buried myself in God's Word and thinking through and trying to, you know, process that. And I called the the um, campus crusade leader at the time, and we talked through it. and um, And that's when I actually gave my life to Christ when I was twenty one.
0: That's incredible.
1: Funny, I stopped drinking at twenty one, right?
0: That is that is very funny. <laughs> but would you say that in that process, that's kind of when? The calling of God became alive to you.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, my life was completely transformed, and it was definitely transformed in a way that I wanted. You know, I felt very strongly and very passionate about investing in other people's lives, and also for people that didn't know Christ. Mm. Just a heart, just a just a really head a heaviness for people that you know didn't have secure eternal security, and so. You know all my friends thought this is just a fad come on you're gonna you'll come back you know this <laughs> this is <laughs> but fortunately it was uh it did it, it you know it it took root
0: so you you mentioned in something that you've had to recently overcome or in in a trial that you've been through is with your mom being diagnosed with with Alzheimer's. how has that been for you guys in the family?
1: It has been a roller coaster of mm. emotions and experiences you know she was diagnosed at, at 55 which is just a really young age and you know had symptoms before that you know that's when she was actually diagnosed fortunately my dad's a physician and so that plays a major role in terms of being able, being a caregiver being able to provide support yes you know usually when you get diagnosed with o- early onset you have a life expectancy of about five to six years she's she's still alive i, I and uh, she's twenty years later. Wow! It, you can't even imagine unless you've experienced what happens. Yeah. When someone goes through that, there are times where it was, you know, that was part of the reason why I came back from Brazil. Um, is because I just my dad, you know, my dad is their sole caregiver, and um, even though we have has the support of my sisters, and they all live in Nashville, you know, they have they have families and they have kids and they have lives, and so they can't dedicate. And uh, so I felt, you know, I've been out of the country for eight years and I, it was time to come home and help out. And so I lived in Nashville for a couple of years. I actually lived with my, with my dad for about two years and um, helped out. But I guess, you know, it was a, a process of first not really understanding, you know, what are the implications here? Because it's hard. I mean, at that age, I was still young.
0: Yeah. I mean, relatively
1: young, and not—I couldn't comprehend, you know, what that would look like. And then the frustrations of, you know, when when you, when when someone is still relatively, uh alert, but you know, they there's there, there's certain certain things that that happen with a regular basis that that mm-hmm. are very frustrating for them and and for the family as well because you can't you can't correct it, mm-hmm. and then questioning like what is the purpose here because what happened and I don't I don't know if this happens with everyone but it seems like it does happen with a lot is my mom was the most gentle kind her 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 greatest passions in life were were animals and babies and and she always wanted to sacrifice herself for for others comforts and you know she was just very um uh empathetic to others and you know, all those all those traits were ripped away from her, and she, um, you know, my dad, when he took his vows, he was not joking. He has been the the most incredible pillar of love and and commitment that I've ever seen. And he, you know, every morning when she gets up and he changes her clothes, she yells at him and beats him and says, "I hate you, I want to kill you." And and then when he puts her to bed at night, the same thing and he's able to separate the disease from from his wife. Wow. So, um you know, it's been a it's been a a a rough road certainly for um for my dad mostly. Yes. But we as a family have just learned how to find humor in it. Um there's so many things that have happened that you just have to laugh when you're out in, when you're out in public <laughs> and you never know what's going to happen. I mean, it was so unpredictable, and you just have to laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, just coming together and you know, in support uh, of one another, and it's really it's it's brought our family you know very close together, and and so that's a, that's a you know, um, in terms of overcoming. To be quite honest with you, I still don't. Um, I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't talk about it a lot.
0: <clears throat> yeah, that's that's totally fine. Has it been? No, I mean, I,
1: I, I, I can talk to you. I was just saying, I don't talk about it a lot. Yeah. And, um, when I do, sometimes when you verbalize things, it becomes, it just, you know, reaches your core. But I think for me, the way, you know, one way I look at it is, I see my dad's love and care for for my mom, and I just know that that those things have eternal rewards mm-hmm. and um and I just hope I can stay in his guest house you know, <laughs> one day because <laughs> he um I, I don't you know just from the perspective of my mom still being alive um you know it's not my mom that's not that's it's just a shell of my mom mm-hmm. you know but again, you know, the time that we've all spent together through this as a family and being close is, I think is has been part of the, 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 the biggest ways that we've been able to, to overcome the struggle.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it's, it's obviously something that y'all are still very much so in the midst of and still walking through and processing. It's, it's amazing that your dad has been such an example of self-sacrificial love to your
1: mom. Yeah. Yeah. He truly is. I mean, um, everything he's, everything he does pretty much in life is he bought a house and, um, and tailored it for her. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, he became a master gardener because he caused the, he made these huge windows where she stay she sleeps in a hospital bed in the, in the living room. And when she wakes up in the morning, He calls it Queen Anne's garden. Her name's Anne and he has all these flowers and running water and like, you know, everything he does still is for her. Wow, Um, Truly amazing. Wow. Yeah.
0: Do you think from him is where you get some of the trait of wanting to go and live with other people in different cultures and seek out what good you can be offering them?
1: Yeah, I always had my dad's blessing on that. You know, he's all he's never steered me one way or the other and just said, you know, as um as long as you're walking in faith, whatever you do, I support you. And I, I think about, you know, I think through my dad's life and he was you know, there's there is a certain trait that that he is he was always a friend to the friendless.
0: Hmm.
1: And um he embraced the marginalized. And um and that was apparent when we were growing up. Um and he still does it to this day. So definitely I think there's a there's that aspect of of, you know, of, of just the population itself of that who he who he's drawn to mm-hmm. um was instilled in me, no doubt.
0: That's really awesome. Thank you, Damon, so much for sharing about what y'all are going through as a family, but also just your your passion and your drive for people and how you're living that out in your life here in austin
1: yeah absolutely
0: next week we'll be hearing from brian and michelle boyd about running a business and their passion for good work and how they get to see each other flourish in their careers thank you for listening